Hello everyone, and welcome to the inaugural episode of Left Inside, a weekly podcast offering a bit of discussion on politics, news and culture from a left perspective. My name is Dermot Flood, I'm your host for today, and I'm joined by Paul Murphy. Hello, I didn't know I was meant to say hello there, but uh, now I know. <laughs> uh, Jesse Nee Kelly. Hello. And Dave Murphy. Hello. Uh, we're in the fourth week of lockdown and using the test run for the podcast as an opportunity to get a bit of socialising in. How's everyone getting on? Good, good. Not too bad. Not too bad. Walking Another from podcast home. on the podcast scene. I'm glad to see it. <laughs> Dave just just says he's working from home, but we can't we can't say where Dave works because <laughs> I think his work productivity at home is uh, substantially less than his productivity in work. I'd say. I think a lot of people are finding that you don't know when to start, when to stop, and like, what do you what is work anymore these days? <laughs> people are just like sitting in bed constantly. I don't know. It seems weird. <laughs> The motivation for it is just a nightmare, especially like if you're waking up in your house, in your room, there's just, there's no motivation to get changed or anything like that. You're not running for buses. Um, Where do you normally wake up? (laughs) If it isn't in your own bedroom. (laughs) Well, you know you're not moving anyway. You're not going anywhere. My friends are making the choice to get dressed and others aren't, and I don't know which is better really, but I think if you're in your pyjamas, everything just seems pointless anyway, if you're trying to work, I don't know. And then with all the Zoom meetings, you only get like one chance a week to get changed out of, like into something presentable, and that's only from like the waist up, so yeah, there's not much much to be done with that. I saw someone advertising on, must have been Amazon or something, that they could have they're selling like 2D bookshelves, uh, which aren't real bookshelves, but that you just put behind you. <laughs> so like, you look very learned when you go into your, onto your Yeah, I've seen meetings. that, yeah. Yeah, I can see the, you, is that the way, uh, where you've got the one behind you there, is it? Th- that's right, I got it specially <laughs> produced with Plekhanov and Lenin and Marx and so on, I had to pay extra for <laughs> But I have all the books on Kindle, so do you know what I mean? Why would I, uh, why would I pay for the real deal? a lot of people on the left or anything anyone involved in politics are used to kind of getting out and about like doing things during the week meetings meeting people and now to just be going from one zoom meeting to the next is it's an absolute nightmare um but i kind of think that's the reason to push like a podcast like this it might be a bit of a way for us to reconnect with people have a bit have a few interviews highlight a few things we think are important Definitely. Uh, I've had to move back to Cavan to my parents' house. I usually live in Galway, um, but I was doing like casual work teaching Irish. And so because of the virus, I do, couldn't do that anymore. So I've had to move home. And I feel not only do I feel like I'm 15 again, which is a problem, but also just not seeing anyone <laughs> like anyone. Cavan is so underpopulated. There's no one around. So it's very weird, to be honest. I don't, don't like it at all. I mean, I, yeah, I think there's... um. I've been thinking about people we could potentially have on the podcast. I haven't asked any of these people yet, so just putting <laughs> pressure on them right now. So Naomi Klein, if you're listening, um, we're going to have you on our podcast. Uh, <laughs> Rob Wallace, who I think will do it because he's Facebook friends. He's a guy who wrote a book um, about big farms breed big flu and the interaction between big agribusiness and pandemics like the the pandemic we're currently uh, suffering from and um, I was on the phone to Brian O'Boyle earlier who's an economist with people for profit who was offering to do something so I think we should have him on the the podcast too um, and I'm sure there's loads of other people like that and not like that that we can um, have on if we could have it on once a week I think that would be quite an achievement and a contribution and I think it'd be good that it's like a podcast that's open to other people on the left and other personalities I got all the guests on RTE just all seem to be from the RTE canteen. So I think having a platform that can be wider uh, for the left can be a place for like ideas to be discussed because there's, you know, like we're going through a historic period, really, like, you know, and there's changes happening and there's uh, loads of ideas out there, loads of different groups. So to have a platform where you could bring people together and discuss things in a way that, you know, people who normally wouldn't uh, listen to these ideas or get to hear these ideas can have a, a proper interaction with it I think is like I do think I do think with um, the lockdown like it's obviously hard for people it's hard for people's mental health it's very like disorientating um, but you do get the sense that people are thinking about things like when life is so dislocated and when the normal is just ripped up it and then people have kind of free time quite a lot of people have free time I think there is a thinking going on out there about why is society organized the way it is how can society uh, be different and i think 
there is like an interest and a thirst in for left-wing ideas. It's possible that there's a thirst and an interest in far-right ideas uh, as well. Um, but from, from our perspective, um, I do think so. Like, people are contacting Rise, people are interested in getting involved, and I think then presenting those ideas in a different kind of non-traditional kind of format is something definitely worth trying. Yeah, I think it's cer- it's certainly the case now anyway. Like, I think when, when this all kicked off, there's obviously a bit of a scramble and you kind of see the media just fall in line behind the government because everyone's just anticipating the measures to get brought in to give a bit of confidence that like, oh, everything's going to be all right. But you can kind of see as things are going on now that people start to question, like especially with, with recent things that the private hospitals and, and a few different outbursts, you have, you have people starting to question what's going on. And I think that'll only go on or that'll only continue as things go on and, and it'll probably come to a head at some point. Definitely. I think people just have more time in general as well, where they've been wanting to read up about things before, you know, and maybe work has taken over or busy schedules, meeting people, stuff like that. Um, And now everyone's stuck at home and they're looking for something to do. So I think people have the time to take on more, you know, thorough thinking about things as well, which is good. All the positives of the lockdown. <laughs> We're all looking on the bright side, aren't we? <laughs> yeah, you can end up just focusing, like getting a bit frustrated on it. Um, but I think, like, it ties into it has allowed us to kind of push on with the podcast. And I think um, for ourselves, it's been clear that a lot of things aren't going to receive the coverage that it deserves at the moment, or certainly what we think it deserves at the moment, due to the to what we talked about with the the media's kind of narrative or, or the government response. And I think you can see that already in coverage around something like the Debenhams workers' strike the other day, where many of the workers were out protesting the fact that many of them are only receiving their statutory redundancy as the company begins liquidation. And I think it's a good example of of how some things kind of get lost in the void or reframed by the media, and and, and we're kind of hoping to engage with those kind of events and hopefully give a platform to a few people um, to bring those issues up. There's a, there's a good article on Rebel News um, by John Molyneux called Their Narrative and Ours, which I read today, which is precisely dealing with that issue, or it's one of the things it's doing is dealing with that issue of kind of media framing. Um, you know, it is, there, there's so many elements of like a wartime type situation where the media just feels the responsibility to toe the line um and he makes the point that like that's a mixture of like an informal pressure where people feel "Mm, well the right thing to do is not to ask too many questions we're all in this together etc but it may well be mixed with explicit instruction as well he references in britain apparently various journalists have come out and been told by the government you need not to ask hard questions at this time because we're all in it together we don't want to confuse people Um, but it, it is remarkable like trying to get coverage for left-wing critical ideas anti-government ideas at this time is a lot lot more difficult than it has been on social media it's been relatively easy because people are looking for an alternative they want to hear a voice but in mainstream media like in the Debenham story I mean at least the Debenham story is is covered but in a certain way and they didn't really cover as far as I could see or not much the fact that like the Debenham strikers were in Henry Street's directed by a guard that they couldn't be protesting they weren't allowed to protest and were sent home like that's a scandal it should have been a front page story and it was pretty much buried i mean there was an article in the irish times but i didn't see it elsewhere it was called an unnecessary journey i think is what the term the guard used which is just crazy when you think about like these workers it's their entire life it's their livelihood it's their future it's like of course it's a necessary journey to protest like it all being you know damaged in that way you know especially at this time as well like it's not the best time uh, to be losing your job or to be in a precarious position um so you can kind of see the motivation behind it it's just tough to kind of break through everything that's going on now and and that allusion to the uk that you were mentioning like is big because i remember when boris johnson was sick even i think they had just topped like mad numbers for deaths in a day and all the front pages were about Boris recovering and things like that um, and you can kind of see how the media kind of shifts it um, and, and, and they get a clean slate at this time I think people have the right inclination to kind of band together and uh, I think put on the green jerseys thrown around a lot but but to kind of put some goodwill out there for, for the work to be done um, but it's just important that things don't get lost in the mix but the point is like, and it's a point John Molyneux makes is that politics continues 
Um, politics isn't something that is suspended at wartime or whatever, and in particular, class politics continues. So, and, and Debenhams proves the point that, like, all the evidence is that Debenhams is just opportunistically using the existence of the coronavirus crisis to get rid of their workers and to liquidate themselves and not to pay workers what they should be entitled to in terms of, I mean, one, to shut down and two, to rip them off in terms of uh, redundancy and to kind of do it under cover of the coronavirus. Um, like, and I think something to contrast that with is like every Thursday, eight o'clock, people are out clapping health workers. And I think that that isn't some expression from my point of view of like, quote unquote, national unity. It's an expression of class solidarity of working class people. And it's overwhelming in working class areas where that has a big response, uh, expressing solidarity and support for those who are literally on the front line in our in our health services. So even though like they're partly government organized things, I, I don't think people by and large, are fully bought into the idea that, oh, the government's doing everything great, etc., etc., and people can see the injustice of how the the Debenhams workers and others are are treated. And you definitely don't get that impression when you're looking at mainstream media, (laughs) that's for sure. Like, it's all, we're all in this together. And, like, even Leah Redford using terms like solidarity and kind of more left-wing language that we're used to using for so long and now we see it becoming this like mainstream thing it's really disingenuous but like they assume that people are just going to accept it and i I don't think they will you know i bet you that when they introduce austerity in and it's coming quick clearly from the the memo that came out um and the stability program update i bet you they're gonna call it solidarity this time around like that's like that's what they're gonna do they're just gonna call oh it's covid solidarity oh yeah sorry you're gonna like we're gonna cut your child's um uh your child benefit we're gonna cut dull for young people we're gonna reintroduce job bridge oh it's solidarity yeah sorry yeah that's that's like i definitely tell you that's what they're gonna call it um, and they're just gonna rebrand austerity yeah, like we're all in this together. Everybody needs to uh, have a bit of a, a lean time together until we make this recovery. But I mean, that's just the framing at the moment. I mean, it's not stopping the like crazy profits in the private sector or the private hospitals at the moment. Um, but yeah, it ties all into to the, the kind of faults in the coverage at the moment. And you can definitely see it in, in something like the Keeling scandal during the week and how that was revealed that the company had been flying in staff from Bulgaria and subjecting them to pretty shocking living and working conditions and that was kind of taken and and led to some strange reactions online and and just in the sphere and and kind of the framing that was used by by different groups led to some bizarre interpretations on it. Yeah, I mean, I mean, what's, what's happened around Keelings in terms of an issue of workers' rights and their complete disregard for workers' rights, their only interest in profit and the government's refusal to take this stuff seriously is, I was going to say shocking, obviously not shocking, but like, it's just very striking. It's very blatant. Um, So we got a document from Inside Keelings during the week, which illustrated that basically Keelings is saying that groups of workers in what's the document called a hostel are being considered that if you're in the same hostel together, then you're a quote-unquote family unit. And by that, they think they're getting around the like HSE guidelines. And they're saying that you shouldn't gather in more than 49 as part of your family unit. So they're visiting family units of 50 plus. So I wrote a complaint to the Health and Safety Authority and the, uh, the HSE, the Environmental Unit of the HSE, So HSA, the Health and Safety Authority, is meant to be the people who supervise working conditions. And HSE are like the health people. And the issue is we've had loads of workers contacting us about their working conditions. And we've gone to the HSA and they've gone to the HSA. And the HSA have said, no, no, this is nothing to do with us. We don't supervise the implementation of the COVID-19 guidelines. So then when I raised that in the doll last week, Pascal Dunne, who said, no, yeah, that's not the HSA. You have to go to the HSE. 
and we have to go to the environmental unit of the HSE. So this time we wrote to both the HSE and the HSA. We got an answer back from the HSA saying, oh, we, we treat all complaints as confidential. And if we do anything about it, that'll also be confidential. So we won't tell you, right? So it's a secret. You complain about a, work, a workplace practice and they're not going to tell you anything about it. And then the HSE came back originally and said, oh yeah, we're going to take this very, very seriously. We'll get back to you quickly. And then they got back to us saying, this has nothing to do with us. We have no statutory footing to deal with it. So like, it's very clear that there's nowhere for workers to go where their employers are either accurately or not accurately saying they're they're essential businesses and they're not following the social distancing guidelines. There is no statutory authority which is has the power to make do investigations, which is obviously what's needed. And it's crazy double standards because like if people are caught outside of two kilometers from their home, you know, you can face these fines that are being induced now, the like higher uh, power that guards have and stuff but yet there's no punishment there for these big businesses that are allowed to get away with much more dangerous things really um and they seem to just be allowed away with it scot-free yeah no, I, I don't think it should come as a surprise to loads of people about like the government's uh, attitude to uh, workers and migrant workers in particular like i think if we look back um, about 15 or 16 years ago there was a major strike that some of us were involved in of with Gama, uh, Turkish workers who are being paid uh, 2 euro an hour um, that um, the company was like stealing their wages putting it in a secret bank account so like migrant workers in Ireland uh, and uh, all workers have always faced like stiffer challenges like at that time there was more dog wardens than there were labour inspectors so it shouldn't come as any surprise like the state has always been weak on workers rights and even with Debenhams, if you remember back like a couple of years ago, Fine Gael were in government when a similar situation happened with Clearies and they said this will never happen again. And like now it's happening with uh, like obviously COVID-19 happening that they, they think they can just say nothing and, and get away with it. And I think it's really important that like the left takes up the issue of Keelings in order to explain that this is a class issue. Like, you know, the Socialist Party took up the question of, of Gamma organize the gamma workers and actually that was like a big thing that it cut across racism because people understood that the best way to improve everybody's terms and conditions is to fight to increase wages for everybody to make sure that everybody has having you know decent job uh, conditions decent wages etc but similarly we need to say that the issue with keelings is not that people aren't from ireland or whatever the issue is how the workers are being treated that the workers are being put in danger as a result because otherwise you have the likes of these you know, national party people who are outside Keelings protesting, um, you know, and, and trying to blame the workers and pit the workers against each other of Irish workers versus migrant workers. Whereas we have to say we're all in this uh, together and so fight for unionization of the Keelings uh, workers and fight for proper inspections and everything else. Yeah, and that kind of framing that kind of took root, the the very right-wing framing that we got originally, it just kind of let Keeling slither away with it because then they were able to say, oh, well, Irish people don't want these jobs. We couldn't give them to Irish people. We have to pay these workers so, such low wages and have them in such bad conditions. And, and it's nearly, they go hand in hand and it's it's two very bad takes on it, um, kind of reinforcing each other. So, yeah, it's shocking. And I think, Leo Varadkar's approach where he said we're going to launch a national campaign to get people working in fruit picking um, you know it kind of just exposed like this is such like back breaking work so low paid you know that he thinks that we can launch this national campaign and that um, because you know like mass unemployment that people are going to just like not see it for the exploitation it is such low wages um, so I, I think that this should be a moment in terms of like I know there's some trade unions organising in terms of going out and like what happened with Gamma trying to cut across like like the the racist arguments and the, and the, the far right who will obviously try to exploit this. Definitely. And you have to remember that Keelings like is a big company and they make a huge turnover and they have money to be paying their workers more, you know. And their CEO, um, I saw today that they're talking about like keeping the Galway races open this year, but like to continue the horse racing but not allow people to attend but yeah like people can still bet so your man joe keeling who's the ceo of keeling fruit he's also the um ceo of horse racing ireland so he's making more profit there if they do end up you know letting people bet on the, the goal races in the summer which is just like there is money there to be paying these workers more and like this whole pandemic has shone a light 
on that as well. You know, maybe people wouldn't have seen it before. And they're they're completely intertwined with Fine Gael. That's lots of evidence to suggest that there's close connection between various high people in Fine Gael and and Keelings. And he, even I mean, Veradker's guilty of gross hypocrisy on it. He so whenever the scandal broke about it, he was out saying, "Oh yeah, it's bad. We have to look at it, etc." But then Ortiz did a report which showed that, like before the whole story came out. The, the Irish government had been over in the European Council arguing that, well, we need to allow in workers to pick fruit, etc., etc. So they knew and they were lobbying to get these workers in, knowing the kind of conditions that they were going to be treated in. And it was only whenever then it came out that then they pretended to have any problem with it at all. But I, I think <clears> a lot <throat> of the reaction that you had from... Like, I think if you look around all the communities, people are putting in a huge effort to try and maintain social distancing, you know, maintain the lockdown. And I think, um, like, I don't necessarily think, like, like, I think there was obviously, like, racist sentiment from some people, but I think a lot of people just thought, like, you know, we're all making this huge effort. And then, like, this major company are allowed to bring people in on very low wages. Um, there's no, uh, you know, health and safety for the workers themselves. Uh, and I think like that's part of like why people uh, are so angry about it, because I think you know like people are making huge sacrifices in terms of the lockdown and trying to maintain, um, like the lockdown itself for uh to to beat the spread of a uh, coronavirus. Yeah, it's like one set of rules for one group of people and another for the others. It's just that's why you can see the unfairness there. I, fa- I found the email here from the the HSA, which says right. Just as your details are kept confidential, any dealings we have with duty holders and employers in relation to the matters you have raised must also remain confidential. Under health and safety legislation, we cannot provide you with details of any specific actions are taken or the outcome. Like, it's it's like going to the guards and saying you're the victim of a crime and the guards say, oh yeah, well, we won't tell, like, the criminal, fine, about you, that's, that's fine. But by the way, we also can't let you know if we ever actually prosecute the person for like robbing you or assaulting you or whatever. Like it would be bizarre that like it's all, you know, shrouded in secrecy. But I, I think as well, like, so there's the Keelings example, but as lockdown, as they try to unwind lockdown, this mm-hmm. issue of health and safety at work for people is going to become a major issue. Like, so like the way it's being posed, like I think today, uh, Tony Hulahan, said that like if things were currently as they are now they wouldn't advise uh, lifting restrictions but the business community are looking for restrictions to be lifted for people to go back to work and to live i think simon harris put a side by side with a virus like you know um and like the motivation is just get people back to work so that yep. businesses can get back to making money and that's going to be a major issue i think over the next two or three weeks because it is a workers rights issue and a health and safety issue as much like as as a as the example that we had there is it's clear like the the construction industry federation the people who represent the builders who didn't want to shut down and had to be forced to shut down from pressure from below and they have clearly been discussions with government and clearly it's agreed somewhere where they've been told informally yeah you should be the first to open and like that's an area where it's very difficult to socially distance um in lots of different parts of work that you do is not possible but also you're touching the same surfaces etc etc like it's very very unsafe and because they're big powerful um important industries that have a lot of political weight they're going to be allowed to open up um and i agree like that's a big battle over the ending of this lockdown and companies will be pushing in the interest of profit to get them open and we'll have to say no public health comes first i i think that being quite cynical around the housing issue in particular because i think you had dublin city council uh, and there was some building sites reopened which are uh, to build social and affordable housing um, and they're using this as well look at we you know this is like their wedge that they're getting in to try and open up the construction uh, industry again by saying it's social housing sites and as much as there's like a crisis in terms of housing uh, there's also this current uh, crisis going on and it should they shouldn't be allowed to play one off the other in terms of well workers have to you know work in unsafe conditions uh, because of the housing crisis and I think that's part of the argument that the CIF are, are putting forward yeah, and I think they're being allowed to do that because they're they're kind of 
being able to set the their own narrative at the moment. There's not a lot of a criticism going around in in the media, and I think the chaos has really been used to kind of abandon even like superficial examination of the government's response to a few different things. And I think there's a comparison as well. Um, they tried to shut down the doll. Yeah, <laughs> they like just we should remember a couple of weeks ago they tried to basically get the doll not to meet again. Josephine Madigan yeah. came into the doll and said everyone should bizarre. be ashamed yeah. of themselves for calling on there to be a doll. And it's, they've had to accept now that it meets every week, so they were forced back because even it was too much even for the media. The media's like, wow. Between that and the fact that at press conferences they were saying we need your questions in advance and we're going to select who's going to come. There's a whole number of instances, but like they tried to diminish the even limited parliamentary democracy we currently have and only they didn't get away with it because of the, the pushback and it, and it's, it shows us such a farce now because it's, it's operating fine at the moment like you have the measures in place um, to, to, to continue as, as much as possible and I mean that kind of discussion is needed even if the doll just to be there um, like just to be able to bring points about like things like the absolute disaster of an arrangement between the state and the private hospitals at the moment I know you yourself Paul were able to bring it up um, the extreme rates being paid uh, in Ireland in comparison with other countries like the UK um, and, and it obviously doesn't get much of a response but but it's still necessary and we, we still don't have the figures mm-hmm. I mean you know we, we found out this is last week we found out at like lunchtime Veradker admitted yeah 115 million uh, a month is what's projected to be spent on the private hospitals. Um, uh, works out it's forty four thousand per bed, um, and then we. So it's actually, in fairness, someone on Twitter pointed it out. They pointed us to the, a British example, which explained in Britain it's about ten thousand per bed. And then when we put those questions to the minister for finance, Pascal Dunne, in the afternoon, he. He, he clearly clearly didn't know the answer and so he responded by saying I know who I am I'm the Minister for Finance I know what my job is he didn't actually like answer the question but since then we've gotten no results I saw there was a journalist tweeted that they asked about it on Friday they got no answer like we, we need the private hospitals to open their books I was talking to a worker today in a private hospital who said they're being paid by the wage subsidy scheme so the private hospital isn't paying them and they wondered is the private hospital going to be claiming for their wages, even though the state is currently paying their wages? So they, they said, oh, we're not making profits, etc. But you, you don't have to have a line at the bottom of the balance sheet which says, oh, profit and a big fat number. You can build profits into your costs. Yeah, I, I think if you look at it, like, yeah, you have, like, GPs and doctors. Like, one of the stories is, like, well, there's this situation with COVID-19. There's other people who are suffering from other norm, like, normal, like, day-to-day illnesses like and they aren't going to the hospitals okay so in the context of this pandemic happening people wouldn't have been probably going to the private mm-hmm. hospitals anyway they wouldn't have been having these um like surgery scheduled like that's the reaction across society so effectively this is working like a bailout for these private hospitals who would have been losing money anyways the state stepping in um but i think like one of the things that we should look at like part of the discussion now has moved on a bit like that we have like a one-tier health system and what's the prospects for for that going forward? Like, are, are, are they going to go back to the, the two-tier health system with the private hospitals just being handed back? Well, it's, it makes you think, like, because, you know, we're all in this together and we're all fighting coronavirus together and this is a joint effort. You would think then that these private hospitals should be given freely to the public in a joint effort if we're all in this together. And then it leads you to think, well, why just for coronavirus? Why not for everyday illnesses? Like you're saying, like cancer treatment, like other really dangerous illnesses that are facing people all the time. Why don't we use these hospitals for that as well? If we're really all in this together, you know, it just shows up how disingenuous it all is. And I think the consultants, some of the consultants coming out and complaining because the contract they were offered was less than what they would normally be able to make in their private practice like and I think like, you know, yeah, we're all in this together like and you have, <laughs> you have these yeah, lads uh, but, but you know. look at who owns the hospitals yeah. you know Dennis O'Brien Larry Goodman Bon Secours religious order um, and exactly like with, it had it in the Irish Times article they're listed as a non-for-profit organisation they made the highest mm-hmm. turnover out of any private hospital uh, in the country one, yeah. crazy it's, yeah the point is that like I mean, I remember seeing that there was like headlines going around the world saying Spain has nationalized their hospitals and then someone, a Spanish socialist, wrote up and said, actually, they didn't, they did a deal with them, etc. The same, it went around the world that Ireland had nationalized our private hospitals. But unfortunately, we haven't, we, we should. 
um, we shouldn't just we're just leasing them um, and exactly as Dave said in a time when they're not going to have much business anyway we're going to be giving them a bunch of money and potentially having a big bailout and fat profits for them but I think that's how it was portrayed at the start like that we've done mm-hmm. the ethical thing and, and we've established a, like a, a one tier health service and only now is that kind of being punctured and the details of the public-private deal that's kind of taken hold has come out and I think over time more things will come out uh, like that and the government will all obviously do their best to kind of scramble to respond to that type of thing but it's important to, to keep that in the in the news. I do think it's like politically a problem for the government that they've established the idea that there can be a one-tier yeah. health service exactly for the reason Jesse said because it's like you know, Simon Harris said something like it would be immoral or unethical mm-hmm. to treat people differently for coronavirus if they're rich or if they're poor. But like, okay, why is that only the case for coronavirus? Why not for heart attacks? Why not for cancer? Why not for, you know, whatever? Um, and I, I think it does create a problem for the government when you establish that. And that's one of the things we have to fight on and say, no, it's always unethical. We need to have a one-tier health service and that needs to be publicly owned. It's crazy how fast Fianna Gael and Fianna Fáil, these establishment parties, can change their tune, you know? It really is. It's, like, unbelievable seeing them switch policies within a few months, you know? Just on other things that Simon Harris has said, I don't know that any of you see yesterday when he tried to say that um, there had been 18 previous uh, <laughs> coronaviruses and that's why it was called COVID-19. Um, he was thinking about the Rocky series, I think. Yeah. This is the, well, it, it, the it, worst it, it, sequel. <laughs> The same point was actually made on Fox News by one of these right-wing commentators. So Kellyanne, I, Kellyanne Conway, whatever her name is. Yeah, yeah, I had images of him, like, like he's like Trump sitting there getting his news off, off uh, Fox News. Or else that for the last, like, eight weeks, he's just been winging it, you know? Just, <laughs> he actually didn't know what was happening. And then, like, he just, ex- he'd done so well and he just exposed himself. Seems pretty legit, to be honest. <laughs> just on, on, on the Harris thing, though, because, like, I think it, like in a way right you see people online being ah come on he's human right and that's like fair enough people can make mistakes but it does it is important in the sense that it punctures the idea that this guy knows what he's talking about you know he he doesn't and and that's that's okay he's relying on experts and so on but he's being put up in the media as if this guy knows everything about pandemics or whatever and he didn't understand something like relatively basic and it's not like a mistake you make supposedly it's like oh, i'm really tired and make mistakes but no like you don't say something that's not that you know not to be accurate because you're tired you didn't know and like again like that's okay in and of itself it's not a, a crime but it does illustrate that there's a kind of a problem with the media portrayal of the government response and how knowledgeable they are and how they know what's what's happening yeah just going back on that the media portrayal i think like the idea that they weren't allowed you had to send in your questions first at press conferences then you've had other press conferences where you know they've asked the same question three or four times over a number of different press conferences mm-hmm. And are not getting answers. Yeah. Um. I think like that's something that like hasn't been missed by people. Like you know, I think people uh, have uh, noticed that you know, but I think like the other like when uh, Dermot's talking about um framing of narratives, I think one that was solved the last few days is this idea that we need to have a new election, and the idea that like if you think back to the February election, that was like an election for change mm-hmm. in inverted commas. Now there's and, no change. So we need another election. Yeah, they want to rerun the election on austerity, <laughs> like you know. Yeah. <laughs> Please vote for no change. Yeah, it's it's incredible. And I think it's because of the situation that we are speaking about there, about trying to form a government and how you have, like, you know, like, they're trying to say a historic agreement between Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael when it's actually the historic decline of them that they've been forced to come together in, in this type of situation. It's totally ridiculous. Like, I keep thinking of, um, you know, because I heard, I think I saw it in one of the articles, they're saying we're like willing to put our differences aside and come together to make this stable government that's going to guide us all through. And it's like, first of all, where are the differences? I haven't seen them. And second of all, like stable. It just keeps reminding me of Theresa May, you know, like strong and stable, strong and stable. And if you like say it over and over again. And it's as if they're not in the worst position that they've been in in years and the fact that this is yeah. like a panic measure to kind of consolidate like around their interests and protect that when they the momentum was quite clearly against them until they could play up the kind of the national interest issue at the moment but that's like if you look at the two documents came out in the last couple of weeks one was there's their like framework document mm-hmm. for government or whatever which is their document to entice the greens and the sock dams in by saying oh we're going to have one tier health service we're going to deal with climate change state's going to play a role in housing so they have that 
And then a couple of weeks later, they have the stability program update and the leaked memo in terms of the government, which basically tell the true story, which is that like they're like running a massive deficit. Mm -hmm. And from the point of view of the capitalist neoliberal policies that they represent, the only answer to that is to have massive cutbacks, not to have more spending on public services, mm -hmm. but to have massive cutbacks. And like that is just so blatant. Like it's just that they're trying to like entice them up the kind of garden path and then once they get in they're like going to present them with this report from the department of finance like, sorry there's no money sorry about that we're going to have to have all the cuts now and Eamon Ryan's going to be like ah right yeah I suppose <laughs> can we have the salad <laughs> and uh, I mean they've kind of been creeping towards it already like I think you had Pascal Donahue recently saying that welfare payments had to be tapered off soon and that we mm -hmm. solely have to wean ourselves off like even the like modicum of, of an offer that people have gotten recently uh, yeah it's bizarre even, even, the, even the framework document talks about that core social welfare payments should be protected. And that's the language of the 2011 to 2016 Fine Gael and Labour government, which Joan Burton used to drone on about like, oh, we haven't cut core social welfare payments, but they cut child benefit, they cut lone parents allowance, they cut like everything except for like, they cut young people's dole. They just didn't cut the like, the basic 203 the euros, figure. the headline yeah. figure. But like, it's all core when you're like reliant on this to survive, to buy groceries, to pay your bills, etc. But I, I think, like, if you look at why they introduced the pandemic payment, it was because the, this hit was so hard overnight. Like, originally, when the f people, our places first started closing, it was only two, it was only 203 euro, or there might mm -hmm. have been a slight top-up. And it was only because they were watching how they were being compared with Britain, mm -hmm. where Britain was seen as, like, making a mess of it. And then they came out with this package that was going mm -hmm. to, like, cover wages. And then it's when that happened, then they said... Oh, we'll have a pandem pandemic payment and it's the 350. And I think, like, that's going to be a major battle, like, because, like, it's sad, but, like, there's hundreds of thousands of people whose jobs aren't going to come back. They won't mm -hmm. be able to reopen. If you look at, like, pubs, look like they're shutting definitely. Like, tourism looks like it's off the agenda for a, maybe a year, a year and a half. That's going to be a whole load of jobs. And in other industries as well that you don't think how they'll be affected by this. Um, and, like, the idea that they're going to say to people oh, we could afford to give you 350, but now you're actually going to have to cut back even further and we're going to bring you down to 203 euro and you'll probably be means tested as well, so you could get less. Mm -hmm. Like, there's going to be a huge reaction to that and I think that's that's something that's coming quickly down the line. And do people think that, the like, you know, parties like the Greens who people would have voted for them in the last election kind of thinking, you know, vote left, transfer left, that whole, like, narrative that was going around... Uh -huh like for them to prop up this government now which is what we're seeing you know could be a possibility with uh the leadership pushing it through like to know what's coming down the line to see that this massive austerity is gonna, gonna come like how could they justify even like trying to prop up Fianna Gael, Fianna Fáil government like i think that's what Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael kind of know that the benefit of getting a smaller party like that to come in is the focus will be all on them and where they've stepped wrong and they're kind of seeking to have a smaller party going at the moment and divert attention from the fact that they've been forced together and kind of reconstructing like an act of being like we're, we're making concessions progressive concessions um when in fact it's just re-establishing like the control that they've lost re most recently like Saoirse McHugh had a really good tweet the other day <laughs> saying, I, I don't know who needs to hear this, but green politics can't be right-wing stroke neoliberal politics. Green politics has to be rooted in equality and justice, otherwise it's just gardening. Uh, shrug emoji. <laughs> but uh, the, the reason that it's funny is, um, obviously she does know who needs to hear it. Like, Eamon Ryan needs to hear it. Like, it's pretty blatant. Like, there's very definitely a battle going on um, inside the Green Party between Eamon Ryan on the one hand, like, looking at any cost to get into government. There was a very funny article in The Examiner a couple of weeks ago talking about how he loves it when people go around and people tell him, oh, he did a great job great. as a minister. <laughs> and this is leaked by people inside the Green Party. So a battle between him on the one side, um, a kind of principled opposition to austerity and to a uh, coalition with the right-wing parties by people like Sirius McHugh, but then also other people who just like are a bit more strategic thinking about the Greens and the fact that if they go in, they're going to be utterly smashed. Like, it's so obvious. Like, you don't need to be some genius to realise in this context of a crisis, the government's not going to do what's necessary in terms of investment in green jobs. They're not going to 
take the measures we need in terms of agriculture. They're just not going to do those things and they're going to have massive cutbacks and the Greens will pay a big price for it. But I, I think it's even worse when you consider, like, I saw that article of Eamon Ryan, like, he's obviously spinning one side, trying to force them in and they're spinning against them. But I think, like, he has the memory of going in in 2007 and, like, what happened, like, and, like, I think, like, what are the three things they're remembered for? Uh, tell us, Dave. Betraying Ross Park. <laughs> yeah. That's, Good that's the major yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah. The bailout. True. And then the other thing that they're actually remembered for is uh, Paul Gogarty telling Deputy Stag <laughs> to fuck off. Like. <laughs> they're the only three things people can remember. Um, but you, he, he almost got elected off that, though. Um, and I, but, but I think like there has to be like people inside the Greens like strategically who see it, but also like in a political sense in terms of what's necessary for climate change that going in with Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael isn't going to do that. And yeah, you have to imagine that they have like their head in their hands every time they see um, Eamon Ryan going on the media and talk, like you, I think you were saying today that the, the proposals that they put forward weren't actually red lines either. I'm looking at the 17 demands here and um, the, it says here the party has said that a Green New Deal must be the heart of any government that is formed in the 33rd though. And like... How they must be delusional to think that Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil are going to implement an actual Green New Deal that's going to not only benefit people but also like working people, but also you know lower carbon emissions in the time needed to do so. Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael don't even know the order in which the words Green New and Deal go in in their in their document. They refer to it as what a uh, new Green Deal or a Green Deal or a New Deal. <laughs> like they don't they just know there's this little buzzword thing out there that you say to make it sound as if you're like about the environment, and they put it in their documents. You know. Well, I I think like for the establishment parties, when you look at it, like they hold themselves up as champions of the environment. Like if you think back, Labour in government brought in the Climate Action Bill, I think it was called, a number of years ago, and it was one of the first pieces of legislation like this around the environment uh, that was meant to be all-encompassing uh, brought in. But if you look like since then, like Ireland's emissions have actually continued to go up and it shows that like, you know, like just tinkering around the edges on the environment, which is all Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil would be willing to do, uh, isn't actually going to, to solve the 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 crisis in, in terms of uh, global warming uh, and climate change. I think it's the same thing in terms of like people reflecting on coronavirus would apply to climate change. Um, like there's a there's a good graph on on Twitter which shows like if if you know flattening the curve in relation to the coronavirus we would have hit this mass you know mass you know huge levels of deaths and so on if we hadn't acted to, and continue to act to flatten the curve. But then similarly there's this like massive you know rise in a graph coming down the line in terms of you know, climate catastrophe if we don't do what the science demands. But the science demands that, like, in a country like Ireland, we're heading for net zero emissions by 2030. And that will not be done on the basis of our economy and our society being run for profit. It is as simple as that. Only a planned economy, which should be democratically planned by workers based on public ownership, will be able to turn around in the space of time that we need it. And, like, some of the things that are being talked about now in terms of, like company, like countries requisitioning supplies of PPE or taking control of factories, directing production. But like, that's the stuff that we need if we're going to avoid uh, climate uh, disaster. But even a lot of the like basic demands that are needed to avoid climate disaster, like, you know, free public transport, um, like four day working week, you know, these are things that are also going to be beneficial to society post pandemic as well, you know, as we recover from the effects of this you know it's like two-pronged really in the way that like it benefits the, the entire of society and it just seems like you just need them as soon as possible really yeah i think like post-pandemic jobs is going to be a key issue um because there's going to be mass unemployment you won't have the like the pressure valve of emigration because it's likely that borders are going to stay like we're not going to go back to the way the EU was, where you could emigrate uh, quite quickly. So there's going to be pressure building up from young people who previously uh, may have emigrated. So I think like the question of jobs and linking that to the environment is key because I think during the crisis we've seen 
what jobs are actually valuable, like care jobs. Like we're seeing the situations in hospitals, in uh, the nursing homes, uh, in terms of solving the housing crisis, building uh, carbon neutral or carbon passive uh, housing um, to you know, we need about a hundred thousand houses to, you know, get rid of the waiting list and end homelessness. So I think like jobs linked to the environment that are environmentally uh, sound are going to be a key thing. And I think the Green New Deal and putting the jobs in the broader context of the environment uh, is a really, really important thing we need to do. Like, there's a there's a book by a guy called David Graeber from a couple of years ago called Bullshit Jobs, um, which is about uh, the fact that so many jobs under capitalism are bullshit. They don't like add to society in any real way and that's no insult to the people who are working in like finance or whatever like but stuff that isn't actually productive they're not creating wealth they're just like shifting around existing wealth that's being gambled between people Um, and I, I do think like the crisis exposes that and like you see so clearly like what are essential jobs and any job that's still going right now is actually a really essential job and it just so happens that all those actually essential jobs are low paid um overwhelmingly women um under unionized and like often not respected and not like treated with the kind of importance that they actually should have in our society yeah you've seen it in the responses like there was a a scramble to paint like the people on the front line as the heroes or, or I think Simon Harris said real heroes don't wear capes and things like that and you've got a good was, response was, Riker, from, was it Riker yeah was it, it was Riker you, first time ever in a T-shirt address uh, yeah. <laughs> between that and the Seamus Heaney like <laughs> and Simon Harris but you've gotten a good response from people just saying like we don't want to be called the heroes we want to get paid like a good yeah. wage and for that to be protected and for her job to be actually valued like not the superficial praise that comes out only now when your backs are up against the wall and we're bailing you out these are the people who opposed their strike yeah what there's a year ago like yeah. refused to pay um be- refused to pay decent terms and conditions to treat those workers properly but also like to mean that we don't completely understaffed in the health service because there's a global shortage of nurses and like it's a global labor market in terms of of nurses people can go elsewhere and the majority of people who graduate in ireland still go elsewhere because the conditions are so bad here so it's just so hollow obviously and the problem is so it's true that when we look back on it like that looks bad but i tell you the other thing that's going to be clear in six months time when they go and try and cut public sector wages Mm. and they say well we're going to cut the health service as well you know people just won't take it well like i think if they try and do that like uh, like they're currently trying to say oh, we're not going to have austerity, and maybe they'll rename a solidarity, Corona Solidarity, like Paul is suggesting. But I think, like, if you look at, like, saying uh, the public sector, like, public sector workers, the pay deal hasn't mm-hmm. ended. Like, they're meant to get, like, uh, some of the money that was taken off previously back at the end of this year. Now, I'd say that's probably gone. Uh, they're going to pull back on that. But then the idea that they're going to cut again uh, on wages that you hadn't even been brought back to where they were previously, I think that'll be a major uh, problem for them. And I think one of the key lessons that people have to take, like, is, like, don't avoid public sector worker and private sector worker. Like, I think if we think back 10 years ago, yeah, I think if we think back 10 years ago, like, how easy it was for them, I think, you know. And it wasn't until, like, under the, the guise of austerity they did all this. And then it wasn't until, like, the water charges movement and movement started happening in society that that was kind of, kind of broke down. So hopefully people have learned the lessons and we don't go back to, you know calling for the fella down the road to have his pay cut and all this type of stuff calling for the Dave down the road yeah. to have his pay <laughs> <laughs> yeah and I think it'll take constant like kind of commentary to establish that narrative um, with people like to keep that fresh and that, that momentum but but I think it's understood by a lot of people like even public sector workers now are more aware of it and you can even see it in different sectors like teachers teaching at home now and discussing the kind of how they're going to have to bend over backwards to get the leave insert done if that does happen and these are the people that are going to get that the cuts are going to be levied against first um so i think there will be an awareness kind of built up of this is what we've gone through and what we deserve um rightfully after this and i think i think i think we should be optimistic as the left of of in this crisis it's going to be different than the last crisis it builds on the last crisis like just look at look at Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael like their combined votes less than 45% in the last general election. Before the 2007 crisis, they were at nearly 60%. So they're massively undermined. 
the left is strengthened. The socialist left has a presence in the doll um, in a way that we didn't at all have any presence. Joe Higgins had lost the seat in 2007. There was no presence in the doll whenever the crisis uh, hit. Um, and But people themselves have been through struggles. They've been through the water charges struggle in particular as a reference point, the repeal struggle, um, struggle in terms of same-sex marriage. And I think... Um, that all makes it more likely that there'd be struggle quicker in a more united way uh, and it'll be more difficult for the trade union bureaucracy to sell it out as happened at the start of the of the last crisis because i think people are less likely to accept it but there's also other like polls of leadership to say no we won the water charges we did it with these methods that's what we need to do again to kind of defend our living standards against coming against coming solidarity yeah, I think that idea of posing a solidarity is quite interesting because they're obviously going to try and, like, you sort of hear it off sometimes that, like, you had this major, you know, this was, like, a, a health crisis. And look at all, like, Pascal Dunahoo in particular pushes it, like, we looked after people at the time, you know, and that people will see the debt as, like, this, you know, uh, we have to pay it back. We, we all had it. And it's just a new version of the we all mm. party type thing, like, you know, because I think... When you look at where all this money is going to go, like I'd say, like when you look at how much goes into people's pockets in terms of pandemic payment versus how much is going to go to business or big business and bailouts which are on the way, like you can see Richard Branson looking for, <laughs> you know, he's, he's trying to put, like, he's got to put his oil and dump his collateral to get like uh, half, half a billion, like, you know. Um, I think, like, when that happens, like, people are going to look at it in a, in a different way. Yeah, I think, like, you, you really could kind of go on about all of this for for as long as as we could get um but i probably think we should probably wrap up at this stage our first episode what do people think what happens if we say no do we get to keep if going you, you keep going and i'm i'm finishing <laughs> got a few more things <laughs> to say paul murphy <laughs> show you air all your grievances <laughs> every politician gets it here's the list of people who annoyed me this week yeah <laughs> <laughs> No, I think we'll get Paul off the mic before he gets himself in trouble. Um, so I guess with that, we can probably wrap it up. And thanks, everyone, for listening. We hope to be back next week and in future with a few special episodes and, and a couple of interviews. Uh, you can find more information on what we've discussed in this episode uh, in the episode description, along with social media for the show and those appearing on it. Uh, we'd also like to thank Galway-based band Turnstiles for allowing us to use their music in the making of this episode. A link to their music can also be found in the description. And just as a plus, Rise are also running a public reading group of Naomi Klein's On Fire, The Burning Case for a Green New Deal, which a few of us hope to pitch in on and could interest a few listeners, so information on that will also be found uh, in a link below. Uh, thanks a million. See you all later. Bye.